I'm going to pray one last time. Heavenly Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for these women. I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would show us what you want us to surrender today, tonight. Let your words go into the deep depths of our heart and change us, Lord. In your name, Jesus, amen. Life is hard, messy, and unpredictable, and we should not be surprised. <laughs> to paraphrase Greg Laurie, if I had to say about how any given day would go, I would never write in crisis. I would not pick another day and write, get sick here, or have a flat tire there, or have an unexpected disaster take place. I would write in all the good stuff in life. I would plan for everything to go wonderfully, and there would be no traffic on the freeways. It would always be green lights and blue skies. But guess what? We're not in charge. God is. Jeremiah 10, 23 says, Oh, Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. The fact is, God will allow the bad things to happen to us. As time goes by, we find that the significant things in life did not really come from the pleasantries. They come to us when we face disasters and troubles. It is then that we become dependent on God in surrender. The difficult days become very valuable because we learn to trust and put our faith in God. He is not random but specific in allowing both the good and the bad. This is a book I received from a retreat roommate about probably 15, 20 years ago. It's called Filled Hands, and it was written in the 1800s, and for some reason, uh, the women didn't put their names. It's written by Mrs. J.H. Morton, and she wrote a biography about Mrs. A.M. Drennan, who went to be a missionary in Japan. Mrs. A.M. Drennan became a Christian in 1845 at a church summer camp. She was educated, and she even went on to do postgraduate courses. In 1850, she was engaged to be married to a pastor of the Presbyterian Church. And so she devoted herself to the Lord because she wanted to be an exemplatory pastor's wife. And it was said of her by another pastor, I hold her up as a model woman for a preacher's wife. In 1863, after 13 years of marriage, her husband died. And strange as it may seem, this good woman, after the death of her husband, was in rebellion against the God that she had loved and trusted so long. This was the darkest period of her life. And speaking of it, she would say, I would not thus uncover this horrid sore were it not for the hope that some soul may be warned and not stranded on the same rock. When her husband was sick, she would not believe it was unto death. Her faith was strong, and she implicitly believed in the promises of God. She said, he has told me to ask what I will, and it will be given unto me. I know God will hear my prayer and spare his life. If symptoms seemed worse, I thought it was to try my faith, and I prayed the more earnestly, strengthening my faith with each text as if faith could save him. I see now that I lost sight of Christ. I was depending on my faith alone to do the work, such faith as I had. It seemed almost enough to remove mountains. There was not a shadow of doubt in my mind. When the physician attempted to tell me his true condition, I said, well, he cannot die. Thus I came up to the very moment when I saw his eyes close. With the knowledge that he was truly dead came this fearful rebellion against God. I said, he is not true to his promises. I have been deceived. God is not true. Oh, the darkness of the hour to my soul. 
For months I was in this fearful state, but thanks be to God, he did not forsake me. He gently led me out of my fruitless struggle against him by tender influence, lovingly thrown around me. And again, as a weary child, I found myself in the ever-waiting arms of my dear Savior. Since that time, my trust in God is not in the strength that I have. And after this distressing ordeal, through which she came as pure gold, tried in the hands of a refiner. The desire to give herself to his work came with renewed force. She was willing to go to distant lands if it was God's will. She did want to become a missionary. She was married again, and that husband also died uh, after two years. So she had to raise those children. And um, the board of the Presbyterian Church asked her to come to a meeting and it says here, Mrs. Drennan wanted to go to the foreign field, but she had never spoken of her desire to enter upon this work. And when the message came, she was startled. So the board asked her if she would go to Japan and become a missionary. And one person stood up and said, oh, what good could one of your age do there? This was a cruel blow to the sensitive, burdened heart and awakened and emphasized the old trouble suggested by her mind, that her age was an insurmountable obstacle. A whole year went past. She gave herself to the Lord, prayed and prayed, and it, said they, it says here in this biography that the Presbyterian Church asked her to come again a whole year later, and this is the comment that was said by the author. She seemed at seat. Many were made to know and feel the grandeur of her character so preeminently was it shown in her words and manner on this occasion, when in her presence one almost felt the impress of the capital D, divine. She seemed to read the inmost thoughts of the heart and know all that was wrong within, and yet it was a joy to be with her, because it seemed their great heart assimilating the divine one, knowing all, would pity and forgive. No one can be long in her society without feeling the sublime goodness of her character. It was not the superiority of mind, although she is a woman of extraordinary ability. It is not a fascinating appearance, though her bearing is most pleasing. It is not her religion. It is the entire forgetfulness of self a going about and doing good so perfect in imitation of Christ-like living that the woman is not seen, but Christ in whom she is hid. Tonight's teaching is called The Promise to a Surrendered Heart. If you know your Bible, it goes Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel. Judges is when Israel was behaving very corruptly. They were not following God's laws, and they were doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. So God was ready to bring in the kings, and he needed Samuel to do it. 1 Samuel 1.1. 1, 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. So Elkanah was from the tribe of Ephraim. He lived in Ramah, which was five miles north of Jerusalem. And as the word states, he was a worshipful man as he went to worship each year. This was indeed the Feast of Tabernacles. It was highly celebratory with much feasting and drinking as they just worshipped and thankfully praised God for leading the Israelites through the wilderness to the land of Canaan. But instantly, there's a darkness. He has two wives. It is thought that Hannah was the first wife, and since she could not have kids, he took on Penina. 
Now, polygamy was never God's intent, but at this time, it was duly accepted. And unfortunately, this does tend to darken the beginning of 1 Samuel 1. The Bible tells us that Penina had children, but Hannah had none. In verse 3, it's noted that this family worshipped. So we see a hopeless and helpless state of Hannah. Here she worshipped the Lord of hosts, which is the first mention of God with this title. Lord of hosts can mean sovereign God over all powers, God of heaven's armies. So Hannah is a believer as God as creator the one who gives life and breath, the one who gave the law to Moses, the one who parted the Red Sea, the one who controls everything. So time passes, and it is not a healer. In fact, only more pain for Hannah. And the temptation is to ask, why is this happening to me? After all, God created women, and they instinctively want to have a baby. Verse 4 says, And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, which was Penina, also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked Hannah. Therefore she wept and did not eat. The question is, can you believe we're in this situation? I mean, God can do anything. He made heaven and earth. He made man and woman. So here we have one woman with children, but not the love of her husband. On the other hand, we have a woman with no children, but a husband that loves her. Penina becomes, Penina becomes a rival and a threat and one who vexes her opponent, Hannah. And why is this? I would guess that Penina thought she would have value and purpose by having babies, but every woman wants to be loved by her husband. They want her husband to desire her. So Hannah is being taunted to the point of unbearable oppression and grief, and this is being done in church. To add to the trauma, her husband gives her an extra food, which she can't or will not eat. Or number two, she has no kids to feed, and this only adds to the trauma. And it is hard to view these things. I suppose we could say, Hannah, get your eyes off of yourself and look to God. But like Job's comforters, it doesn't offer a lot of help. Additionally, the Bible states two times that the Lord closed her womb, and it just plain old feels mean, but we know that God is orchestrating things. Since we have a view like that of a scene in a movie where we, we might say to Hannah, Hannah, one day you'll look at 1 Samuel chapter 2. <laughs> he raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the beggar from the ash heap. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints. But it's about to get worse. Yet God is intervening and redirecting. Verse 8, then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Hmm. Sensibly, pragmatically, and even biblically, I think we could say, well, yeah, we want to be married first. And the family unit is the husband and the wife. John MacArthur said this particular question in the Hebrew uh, means there's a sense of anger in Elkanah's voice, uh, I-R-E, ear. He's a little frustrated with Hannah when he asked her this. And I think if we could all gather together, we might say, Elkanah, come here. Maybe you should say, Hannah, I love you better than 10 sons. 
Anyway, the tension increases and the mental torment is too much. So Hannah arose, this is verse 9, so Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And we might say, Hannah, just if you could just look at Psalm 73, all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me, yet... I went to the sanctuary of God. Sorry, then I went to the sanctuary of God. Yet, Hannah still wept. In verse 20, 15 of the book of John, Jesus says to Mary, Mary, Woman, why are you weeping? Well, Jesus knew why she was weeping, but he wanted her to tell him. So God knew why Hannah was weeping, but he wanted her to tell him. So if we want to grow in intimacy with the Lord, we need to tell him what we're anxious about, sad about, and maybe even mad about. Are you in the habit of telling the Lord what is getting to you and what is bothering you? If you don't learn to talk to him, read the word, and listen to him, you will miss out on a whole lot of healing. And at the end of the day, what we need is Jesus. There are things that happen to us that we, do not, that we are not happy about, stuff that goes down in a certain way that we want to ask, how come, why, and how will you respond? A, you might respond with anger and frustration. You might say, I can't take it anymore. I've tried to do what is right, and it's not working. I feel frustrated and angry. 2 Samuel 6, 5 through 8, David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, on firwood, harps, stringed instruments, tambourines, cisterns, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error. And he lied dead by the ark of God, and David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. I'm sure Uzzah was a really good guy. I'm sure we know that David was. We know that he was a man after God's own heart. But the fact of the matter is God had given very specific laws to Moses on exactly how to move the ark, and they did not obey. So what if Hannah would have responded with anger and frustration? Maybe she would say, God, I'm angry, I'm mad, and I'm done. B, when things don't go your way, maybe you feel offended or confused. Luke 7, 18 through 23, then the disciples reported to John, who was in prison, concerning these things. And John called two of his disciples to him and sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? After Jesus had done many miracles of healing, he said, Go tell John the things that you see and have heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. If you know the story, you know that John was beheaded in prison. I don't know about you, but this makes me go, wow. Jesus, I'm just wondering, could you just maybe have an angel escort him out of the prison and then he could just die in his sleep gently that night? I mean, I just want to be a little offended because, I mean, he was doing everything that was right. John was spot on. What if Hannah would have responded with uh, offense? Maybe it would, be good, it would go something like this. Lord, if you can do miracles for crying out loud, get me pregnant. See, sometimes we respond with indifference, apathy, or despondency. In Isaiah, we read that Hezekiah showed all of his riches to the Babylonians, which was not smart. They were the enemies, after all. And prophet Isaiah come in, and he says to King Hezekiah, what have you done? Hezekiah tells him, 
Well, I showed him all my riches. And Isaiah 39.6 says, Everything you own shall be carried away to Babylon. Nothing will be left. They will even take away your sons, whom you will beget, and make them Enoch's in the palace of Babylon. Verse 8, So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word which you have spoken is good. At least there will be peace and truth in my days. Hannah could have said, if she was despondent or apathetic, she might say something like, okay, I can't have kids. That means more money to spend on me. I'm going to get those shoes in all three colors, the matching purses. If anybody wants to go into town, dinner's on me. How did Hannah actually respond? 1 Samuel 1, 10 through 11. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish, which is a mental torment. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. So Hannah responded with surrender and sacrifice. I thought about this a long time and I think that you can have surrender and it almost invariably will have sacrifice following. And we see this in our Lord Jesus Christ. He surrendered himself to the cross, and he was indeed sacrificed. But in thinking about this, I think sometimes there's times where we sacrifice, but we might not be surrendered to the matter. And I had a friend years and years and years ago. I haven't seen her for a very long time. And uh, she told me a story where she had been in church, and there was a family that was uh, need, they were having financial problems. So she gave them $300. The next time she was in church, she saw the dad or the man of the family with a Starbucks. And she felt offended because she felt that that money should specifically go to the bills and the food, and you shouldn't be buying luxury drinks. So that would be an example. There was a sacrifice, but she had not surrendered her heart, heart and mind to the matter. Now, God is gracious. He's so gracious, because I can tell you for years and years, I, I think it was, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years, I led a prayer group on Wednesday mornings, and Tuesday night, I would bellyache, because I knew I was going to set that alarm for dark 30, and I was going to try and beat the traffic, and get. I had to drive a whole hour to get over to Plano, get into the church by 8.15, and then we had all the missionaries, and the, all the Calvary chapels listed, and peoples, and then, oh, it just went on and on, and... and um, but once I stepped foot in that church, I, it was like a peace came over me. And when those girls came in and we started to pray, and we prayed for, from 9 to 11, that heart was completely surrendered over to the Lord. And I just would get in my car and think, why was I complaining? That was so wonderful. It was so beautiful. And I feel like this is something that kind of happens with our Bible study. Sometimes you're sacrificing the time just to get into the thing. But once you're there, you're surrendered. Thank you for Lord's grace. Okay. But Hannah, she surrendered wholeheartedly. To surrender means to cease resistant, resistance, to abandon oneself. She said, look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and do not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child. In Hebrew, that would be ama, female slave or bondwoman. That's the word for maidservant female slave or bondwoman. She's calling herself a slave. A slave has no rights, no possessions to call her own. A slave doesn't get an identity. A slave doesn't get to clock out at the end of the day. A slave doesn't get to negotiate. A slave says, what can I do for Jesus? Someone else might say, what can Jesus do for me? A servant says, a servant works for someone, but a slave is owned by someone. 
So here's the kicker. When you finally surrender all that you have and all that you are, you find that becoming a slave to Jesus is the only way to find freedom. This is an act of self-denial, and it does mean giving up all your rights to the master. So Hannah's despair drove her closer to the Lord through surrender. In her misery, she now trusts in the Lord's true grace that he keeps his promises. Whereas before she was concerned with infertility, now she's concerned with what God wants, promisability. And what does God want? He wanted to fulfill his promise to a nation in turmoil. Genesis 17, God speaking to Abraham, verse 6, I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. Verse 16, I will bless Sarah and give you a son by her, and then I will bless her and she will be a mother of nations and kings of people shall be from her. Genesis 18, 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? In Genesis 48, Jacob was old, 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 and he is sitting on that bed and Joseph comes in because he wants him to bless his two sons. Joseph's two sons was Manasseh, and Ephraim. Manasseh was the older son, so he placed Manasseh under Jacob's right hand. Ephraim was the younger son, so he placed Ephraim under Jacob's left hand. And Jacob went like this. And here's what he said. Bless the lads, let my name be named upon them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude into the midst of the earth. Jacob said, truly, the younger brother shall be greater and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. Lastly, I firmly believe that Hannah knew Genesis. I believe she knew the Torah, which was the five books, five, first five books of the Bible. Genesis 22. I, I can just picture Hannah studying this. Listen closely. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and the two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for a burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then when they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay a hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son. As New Testament believers, we do get Galatians 3.9. It says, those who are of the faith are blessed with believing Abraham. In Galatians 3.29, it says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. God allowed Hannah to come full circle so she could have a son from the tribe of Ephraim named Samuel, who would usher in King Saul and King David. And God will allow certain obstacles, trials, and stresses to serve his own purpose. As we read at the beginning, the Lord had closed her womb. And I can't help but wonder if all these Genesis accounts came flooding to her mind as she actively and purposefully surrendered to the Lord. 
There was no begging, no deals, no threats, just praying and surrendering. 1 Samuel 1.12, and it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. So it was common for people, number one, to pray out loud, and number two, to show up tipsy, especially during the festival time. And we know that they weren't exactly following God's laws. So she said, no, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit, and I have neither drunk wine or intoxicating drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli said, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. And she said, let your, and she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way, and she ate, and her face was no longer sad. It was as if the smile of God was upon her, and now she could smile and she could eat. 1 Samuel 1.19 records that Elkanah and Hannah and the rest of the family went home, and the Bible records that Elkanah knew Hannah and the Lord remembered her. Verse 20 says, In the process of time, Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, or heard by God, because I have asked for him from the Lord. Elkanah wanted to go to Shiloh to go to the festival, and she said, you know, I don't want to, I'm paraphrasing and just kind of putting in words, she's like, I don't want to take the baby up and back, up and back. When I go, it's, he's going to stay. So she said, let me wean him first. So he says, only let the Lord establish his word, and then she did indeed wean Samuel. And then the next year when he was weaned, she took him up to the Feast of Tabernacles. And when she saw Eli, she exclaimed, Oh, my Lord, as my soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. So Hannah kept her promise, and I don't think she was sad about it. I'm giving you, well, let me see. I'm going to say a little bit more first. So we take the groaning, or we could say the loss, for what we do not have here, and we surrender. Luke 9, 23, 24 says, For whoever wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I'm giving you another missionary story. Anne Judson was the wife of America's first foreign missionary, Adoniram Judson. Adoniram was 24 years old when he decided to leave America and sail to Burma. Burma did not have a single missionary and was an extremely hostile environment. He was in love with Anne, who was 23 years old at the time. Adoniram wanted to marry Anne and then move to Burma to spread the gospel. Before he married Anne, he wrote her father the following letter asking her hand in marriage. I have now to ask whether you could consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of Jesus who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing and mortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness? Her father told him it was her decision to make. 
As Anne thought about the decision, she wrote the following note to her friend Lydia. I feel willing and expect, if nothing in Providence prevents, to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia, I have come to the determination to give up all my comforts and my enjoyments here, to sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends and go where God in his providence shall see fit to place me. In 1813, they left for Burma. They would experience one hardship after another. In 1824, Adoniram was put in prison. He was there for 18 months. At night, his feet were tied up and hoisted up into the air till only his shoulder and head rested on the ground. It was often 110 degrees and the mosquitoes would eat him alive at night. When he went to prison, Anne was pregnant, yet she walked two miles every day to plead that Judson be released. After a year in prison eating rotting food, Adoniram had wasted away with hollow eyes, dressed in rags and crippled from torture. Crippled from torture. His daughter Maria was born while he was in prison, and Anne was as sick and as thin as Adoniram. Her milk dried up, and mercifully, the jailer actually let Judson out of prison each evening so he could take the baby into the village and beg for women to nurse her. Eventually, Adoniram was released. Not long after that, Anne died at age 37 from spotted fever. Because of Adoniram and Anne's efforts, the entire Bible was translated into Burmese. Today, there are over 3,000 congregations that trace their beginning to when Adoniram and Anne Judson said to God, wherever you want us to go. I looked it up, and Anne herself translated the book of Daniel and the book of Jonah. It is only by dying daily that we're able to follow Jesus. So we don't say, okay, I'll try. We say, okay, I'll die. Jesus invites you to die to be a slave, and this is by being surrendered to the Holy Spirit's leading. Paul said in Acts 20, 24, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So our identity is in a surrendered life to the Lord, to the Lord Jesus. We get to live a life that is worth the cost of living. Everybody, everybody would like to live for something that's valuable, for something that's worthwhile. And this is something that we have when we know the Lord Jesus. Jesus already died for us in complete surrender. So we don't give ourselves over to something that is a lie. For every one of us, we want to live for something that moves us. We want to live for it, so we die to ourselves. My life and your life is only valuable if it is given over to Christ Jesus. And somehow, the whole surrender thing is no longer scary. Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so we say, here I am. Heavenly Father, I thank you and I praise you for tonight. I thank you for these women. Lord, I know that this surrender thing feels kind of uncomfortable and hard, but if you would just show us if there's something, one little thing that we need to surrender, guide us, Lord, guide us tonight, guide us as we drive home, guide us in our group time, show us, Lord. We thank you, Father. We thank you for our, your son, Jesus, that gave the ultimate surrender and sacrificed his life for us. Thank you that he rose from the dead and we now can have a relationship with you. In your name, Jesus, amen. Wow, wow. Um, that is really hard to follow, but my big takeaway from that is that was very sobering, and I think that we need to pray that we would have Hannah's um, response. 
And as you go to your groups, like that's what I would ask of you as you go off is like, are you calling, what do you need to call on the Lord of hosts? to tonight? What do you need to call on him to? And that was my first thing that I really um, picked up on. And I loved how Val said um, that Hannah was a slave to God. And that's what being a maid servant is. And that's why she could call to the Lord of hosts because she was a slave to God. And the, the result of that was the peace and the surrender because she knew the word of God. She went back to knowing the word of God. She remembered the story of Abraham and Isaac and how God provided that sacrifice, right? And then that gave that surrender didn't make her sad. It made her glad when she took her baby, her, her weaned child back. It made her glad because she had already surrendered him to the Lord. And so I love when she said that Jesus invites us to die. He does <laughs> um, because living for him is a life worth living, right? And um, are you given over to Jesus because that's the reward? And there's so many. I have so many notes here, but um, there's nothing funny that's so serious and so sobering but so delightful. So when you go to your groups, I just ask that you would just shoot a prayer, a little prayer to God, the Lord of hosts, asking him, what do you want me to surrender tonight? And you know what? When you surrender, you're going to be so glad. So if you're in my group, you're in that circle over there. If you're in Tamar's group, you're somewhere over here. Um, Jill's group is somewhere over here. And Val's group is somewhere over there in that circle. If you don't know your group, I think there might be two people here that don't know their group. All right, we're good to go. <laughs>